morning. I'm going to jump into this quick because I was told it has to be short because it's snowing. I won't tell you who told me that, but it's not going to help. Sorry, it's, it's not going to help. Not going to help. Help for perseverance from Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Uh, not a huge fan of the title, but it's what we're going to go with right now. I was originally, originally just going to look at 12 through 14, but I realized 12 through 14 don't make any sense unless you get what's around it. Um, so we are going to talk about helping one another persevere, but we're going to look at the nation of Israel first. This past week, I learned of an organization called Christian Solidarity International. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. Um, they're a human rights organization that is working to free uh, slaves in Sudan. Christian brothers and sisters who have been enslaved, um, which in the 21st century is kind of crazy. But since uh, 1983, it's been reported that there, are over, there have been over 200,000 men or women and children enslaved by Islamics, um, Islam in northern and southern Sudan. And in 2008, they have a difficult time getting exact numbers, but in 2008, it was believed that there are still 38,000 slaves in northern and southern Sudan. Open Doors USA defines Christian persecution as any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification as a Christian. And it stems from verbal assaults, verbal harassment, hostile feelings, attitudes, and actions. On their website, they state every month that 322 Christians are killed for their faith, 214 churches and church and Christian properties are destroyed, and 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians, and be that beatings, abductions, arrests, or forced marriages. So there's no doubt that we are living in times where Christianity is severely being persecuted. Now, we don't experience this exact stuff in our land, but it's coming, I fear. January 22nd, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that read, New York, New York State's bid to control religious schools. Local public districts would have the ability to shut down private institutions. The state of New York is ready and willing and waiting for a vote to give local school districts the ability to shut down Christian institutions if it is deemed that those Christian institutions are not raising our children to the level of what the state deems to be appropriate. And unfortunately, the fear is that it's not going to be academic, but more or less what they're being taught, not how they're being taught. We've also heard about businesses around the country that are shut down due to their Christian owners taking a stance for their religious beliefs against homosexuality, against taxpayer-funded abortions, against being forced to give contraceptives to young women that they don't feel is appropriate. I haven't experienced that. Maybe you haven't experienced that. But it's coming, and we need to be ready for it. But also, maybe it's possible right now that you're in a place where you're struggling. You've got a low point that you're struggling through, dealing with pain, suffering, death of a loved one, sin in your life that you're struggling with, financial struggles, relationship issues. Maybe if you're just wondering with doubt, is this all worth it? You look around and you see a world that is, like I said, growing ever more increasingly hostile towards Christianity, and you wonder if it's worth the persecution that's coming. 
My question is, how do we process all this? How are we supposed to live in this world, live the Christian life, and struggle with all of this stuff? On the flip side, if you or I see somebody struggling with some of this, what are we to do? Are we to keep our mouths shut? Should we talk to them? You know, I don't want to offend anybody. But yet if I see a brother or sister struggling, is it okay to talk to them? This is a tension that we face that goes back and forth. And we listen to the devil sometimes when we struggle with our sin, and he tells us, you know, I can't believe you're still struggling with that. You've been a Christian for how long, and you're still dealing with this? Or we get those temptations thrown our way, you know, I just take a look. No one's going to notice. You know, you're in your home by yourself. No one's around. You can delete your browsing history. No one's going to know. Or we get the temptation to gossip. You know, somebody tells us something in confidence, but yet we think, well, maybe if I share this with somebody, you know, they can help me pray for them. And maybe if I show them their sin, then I reveal my sin. Mine won't look quite as bad as their sin. How do we struggle with them temptations with those desires to want to do that? I believe the book of Hebrews was written to address these matters. Um, if you read through the book of Hebrews and you follow themes, we don't really know a whole lot about who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to, when they wrote it. Um, a lot of scholars think of this as one long sermon that was given. It was written down, but it was to be read as one sitting as a sermon. Uh, and there's themes through it. And through these themes, there's three types of dangers. There's passive dangers, there's active dangers, and there's outside dangers. The passive dangers are the dangers that are just that, the ones that areas in our life where we become passive in our walk where we don't read our Bibles, and these references are all coming out of Hebrews, so the chapter and verse, becoming dull in our hearing, not growing in our faith, growing weary or faint-hearted. We have active dangers, those dangers that we bring upon ourselves, the not dealing with an evil heart, rebelling against God, not meeting together regularly, deliberately sinning. These are all active things that we actively do. And then there's outside dangers. These are the things that are outside of our control. Some of those things I just listed, the persecution that we are just having heaped upon us because of what we believe. These are also temptations that we face when we find ourselves in time of need, when we have struggles with sin or, and suffering. These are all things that come from outside that we need to process and deal with. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at two active dangers that I believe are linked one of them is an unbelieving heart, and the other one is a rebellion against God. I believe the first one, if not dealt with, leads to the second one. So if you want to turn in Hebrews to chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years... Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? 
Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of disbelief. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, and as we take a look at Israel and we look at the unbelief that was in their heart and the rebellion that came out of that, Father, I pray that we would take a look at our own hearts and see if there is an evil, unbelieving heart in any of us. Father, and if there is, that we would, as the psalmist says, if we hear your voice today, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would hear from you, that we would allow you to do the work, that we would swallow our pride, and that you would lead us to a place of repentance. Father, be with me as I bring this. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, and that we would have open ears to hear what you have to share this morning. In your name I pray, amen. An unbelieving heart. If you go to Numbers 13 and 14, this entire discourse in Hebrews is dealing with that, with that issue. And in fact, the first part of what I read, this, the 7 through 11, that is actually from Psalms 95. It's bits and pieces taken from Psalm 95. It's not the whole thing, but it's parts of it. But everything that the writer of Hebrews is dealing with is coming from this act of rebellion that the Israelites had in Numbers 13 and 14. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to take a survey of all of this. And I think we all know the story. The Lord says to Moses, send 12 men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. For each tribe of their fathers, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man and everyone a chief among them. So they go, they come back, and this is the report that they bring. We came to the land to which you sent us, It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They have a bunch of grapes between a pole, and I did some research on this. The largest grapes ever grown in the the world were 21 pounds. So you can imagine that this was a large bunch of grapes. This is going back to 1985 or 6. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. So 21-pound grapes, these were bigger than that because I don't think Josiah is quite 21 pounds, and we don't have to string him between a pole to carry him around. So you can imagine that this was big fruit, and they are ecstatic about this. Uh, you can hear it. I can hear it. I hear it in their, in their land when they come back, and they're like, yeah, you know, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Right away, my mind went to Josiah again. Every time that kid sees his yogurt, he, he just has a joyous outburst. It is hilarious. If you've never seen it, come to our house sometime for supper. I'll get his yogurt out. It's great. But it's just a, they just had a joy about themselves. But unfortunately, this is where it stops. Israel loses it at this point. Numbers 13, 28 says, However, and these are still the spies talking, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea. Right away, they see this land, they see it flowing with milk and honey, they see its fruit, but they doubt. Now, this is a problem 
Because this isn't something where God says, hey, I'm going to bring you to this and then you need to conquer the land yourself. I'm just going to get you there and then it's up to you. No, God says three times through Exodus. But before we get there, this unbelieving heart is where all of this begins. I believe this is where all sin starts. An evil, unbelieving heart. This is where it started way back in the Garden of Eden, and I know that the disobedience is what caused the curses in Genesis 3, but the disobedience was not the beginning of the problem. See, the act of their disobedience was an outward expression of an inward position. They doubted what God had told them, just like the Israelites doubted when he told them in Exodus or in Numbers 3.12 that this is the land that he is giving to the people of Israel. Exodus 3, 7 and 8, I am promising to bring you up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus 3, 16 and 17, again, I am promising you that I will bring you out of the affliction to the land of Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. The underlying issue in, in the Israelites and some of the underlying issue in our hearts is we don't believe. We don't trust God at what he says. Adam had the same problem, Eve had the same problem, and Israel had the same problem. They didn't trust God when he said, I'm going to give you that land. All they saw was the problems in front of them. All they saw were these big guys. All they saw were these fortified cities. They saw the struggles they had to deal with. But they forgot the promises. Several promises of God that he gives to us as believers is a fullness of life. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1.1. He claims that he's a Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ. It's not an easy life, but he promises it's going to be a good life. Eternal life in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Again, blessed are those of us who remain steadfast under trial. That tells me trials are coming. We're not going to be able to just breeze through this life. We're a Christian and now everything's going to be great. That's a lie that you don't need to buy. It's not going to happen. We'll have the peace of God. Paul says in Philippians 4.9 that we are to rejoice the Lord in all ways. We're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God. I believe that's after all of that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. I understand this peace of God. As I was reading through this, I didn't realize I was going to get to this, but I'm sitting here thinking through all of this, and I understand the peace of God that, under, that surpasses all understanding. At 16, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer and given two months to live. There was a promise that I was holding to that I received about two days after I, I got that diagnosis. John eleven four, Jesus is, is talking to Mary. Lazarus has just died. Mary comes to Jesus, and he is, she is freaking out. Lord, he's dead, he's dead. Jesus looks at her and says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. I'm sorry, Lazarus was sick. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Two days after my diagnosis, I received that in an email, or I don't remember how I got it. Somebody gave me that. From that moment on, there was never a matter of if I was going to be cured. It was when and what I was going to have to walk through. 
That was a promise that I'm holding on to. I could have doubted. I could have said, no, the doctors gave me two months. Well, this is never going to happen. If you know my story, some of the stuff I had to do, you'd think I'm nuts. It was crazy. To boil it down, I was eating ground up weeds, honestly. I mean, that's the way I tell people. It was herbs. That's what I did. And a lot of prayer. But I believe there was a point for that. God was going to get the glory. Nobody else. No doctor. It was God. That was the point, I believe, of the Israelites seeing those giants, seeing the fortified cities. God wanted to make it known that Israel took that land because of him. God wanted it to be known that nothing Israel could have done was going to get them in that land. God wants the world around us to know that the struggles that we face, it's not because of who we are that we get through them. It's not because you and I as human beings can walk through some of the trials that we face, but it is because we have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ and in his Father. The problem is Israel failed to see that. Israel failed to see that they had a God bigger than the struggles and the, and the struggles that were in front of them. And that led from an unbelieving heart to rebellion against God. And I fear that if we don't deal with the unbelief that is in our heart, and it may not be on a salvation level, maybe you're here to sit, you're saved today, but you still have those doubts. Don't allow those doubts to take root, and we'll see why. Numbers 14, 1 through 10, Israel's crying aloud, they're weeping all night because of this report that they bring back. These ten guys come back and they tell the whole congregation of Israel what's going on, and Israel loses it. Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, they say, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now through all of this, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb are trying, trying their hardest to speak into these people's lives and say, no, listen, God has promised us we have found favor in his sight. We just need to go up there and God is going to give us this land. That didn't work. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Earlier I said our rebellion is an outward expression of an inward position. Israel's inward position was unbelief. They saw the land, but they didn't believe that they could take it because they didn't believe that God was going to give it to them. Their outward expression was rebellion. They were told to go in and take the land. They chose not to. Even after several attempts by the four men, Israel says, nope, not going to do it. We're not going to sacrifice ourselves. We're not going to sacrifice our kids. Our kids and our wives are going to be taken as slaves. We're not going to do it. We don't trust you to do what you said you're going to do, so we're not going to do it. But I want you to notice something. They had a choice. Their act of rebellion was not pushed upon them. Their act of rebellion was not anything other than an active choice on their part to say, we know what you said, but we're not going to trust you. You have a choice. Twelve men walked into the land, of the land of Israel. They walked into the promised land. They all saw the same thing. They all walked out. Ten, ten chose to rebel along with the nation of Israel, chose to rebel against God. Two of them chose to trust God. 
So if we bring that into our context today, we're talking about how do we deal with the struggles that we face? How do we deal with the sin in our lives? How do we get past this unbelieving heart that even in the face of our struggles, even in the face of our trials, even in the face of whatever it is that you're walking through, how do we get past that unbelief? First off, I want to let you know you're not the first person to experience what you're experiencing. This is not to downplay what you're experiencing. I'm not saying that because you're not the first person that your trial, that your struggle, or that whatever it is doesn't matter. I am here to say that you are not alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He is saying that whatever you're facing, somebody somewhere has faced it before, and somebody somewhere will face it again. But he goes on to say, but with the temptation, he being God will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You have the same choice that Israel had. They saw what they wanted, but there was something in their way. There was a temptation to believe that God wasn't going to do what he said he's going to do. And they had to make that choice. God's way of escape for them was the fact that he said, I'm going to give this to you. That's the same way of escape that you have. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The temptation isn't the problem. Jesus was tempted three times, yet sinless. If temptation was the issue, Jesus couldn't have been tempted. How you respond to that temptation is the problem. In Hebrews 4, later on in the book, since we have a great high priest, which is Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way and every respect was tempted just as we are. Jesus has walked where you walk. He has stood where you stood. And he has said that he will help us through when we get to those places. Jesus in his humanity made a choice not to sin. He chose to listen to his father and to obey his commands. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was faced, I believe, for the first time of the actual reality of what he was going to walk through on a human side. I believe the divine side of God knew it all along. But on the human side, it was at this moment that he recognized and realized the pain that he was going to face. He had a choice. Is the God of heaven in human form. He could have said, no, we're just going to grant them. I'm just going to say it's done. I'm not going to walk through this. He prays that in his prayer. Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Right there's his moment. Humanly, he doesn't want to walk through this. But he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. His will, we find out later in John 4, was to do his food, was to do the will of the Father who sent him and to accomplish his work. Jesus had submitted himself to the will of God the Father no matter what it cost him. 
no matter how hard the trial you're facing right now may seem or how enticing the temptation the devil puts in front of you may look, going against what the word of God says will only lead to death and destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Maybe not in this life, but there is a day coming where your unbelieving heart, it will be too late to deal with it. So how do, we, how do we do this? We see it in the nation of Israel. They chose to go the wrong way. But if you notice, there were four men that came to them and said, no, this is what God said. We can do this. We have to do this. Three of them end up seeing the promised land, entering the promised land. All four see it. Moses, if you remember later, he smacks the rock instead of touching the rock. And because of that act of disobedience, he doesn't get in. He sees it but he doesn't get in. So there were three men out of an entire generation that get in to see it. And it were the three that obeyed God. They were the three that were trying to help the others get in. We started by looking at a passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15 reads, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. This is where Israel lost it. They had that unbelieving heart, and it caused them to fall away. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is where Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb stood. They were exhorting them. They were exhorting the nation of Israel, do not go this way, do not go down this path. It only leads to death. You will not get in. We can do this because God has said he's going to help us do it. There's two things we're going to pull from this. First, we need to watch each other. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to exhort one another so that none of us is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To urge someone to exhort someone is to urge them or implore them, to earnestly support or encourage a response or an action. If you see, if I see patterns of sin and unbelief, in your life, if you see it in my life, if we see it in each other's lives, we have to, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of that person, talk to them. We have a right, I believe, and a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ and members of a church to deal with this. To talk to that person in a loving way, not in a condemn condemning way, in a condescending way, but just in a loving way, say, listen, I care about you and this is what I see. Don't brush it off as if it's none of your business. You have, I believe, a right and a responsibility to help one another in this. Beyond that, if somebody comes to you with a struggle and they have to share a struggle that they have, don't write them off. Even if they're dealing with something that you never have or if they're dealing with something that you think they should be beyond this by now, don't write them off. They are coming to you. They are opening their hearts to you. They need your help. Point them to Scripture and to Jesus Pray with them there. Pray with them in your daily prayer. This passage is one of the reasons that I've been pushing small groups or life groups. Uh, my desire is for us as a church to be intimately involved in each other's lives. This is a life-on-life -life ministry that I'd like to see at Mount Pleasant. Where we don't have a chance to fall to an unbelieving heart because we don't give each other the chance to fall to an unbelieving heart. We have a program, Men of Iron, Strong 27 for Men. Ladies, we have ladies' fellowship, but I don't believe we have a one-on-one -on -one mentorship. We have small groups. 
These are areas of genuine care where we actually care for one another. I'm not saying that we don't, but where it's beyond just the physical needs, where we look at spiritual needs as well. Jesus Christ is returning one day, and I want to see everybody in eternity. I don't want to get there and wonder, well, where's this person? Why don't I see them? Knowing that I had a part to play in them getting there. Ask God to show you things that you can give up if you're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. But are we busy with things that are trivial? Are there things that we can give up for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ to make time to allow them into our lives? Ask God to show you if you have these things in your life. I've been asking God to show me these things in my life. Are there things that I do that I don't necessarily have to do, but that I can set aside in order to spend time with people that I care about? But there's another thing here. We need to watch ourselves. If you have an area that you struggle with, you need to recognize it. If you have doubts, don't hold them in. Bring them out. Talk to people about them. Swallow your pride. And if we do the first part right, where we watch each other properly, and we're not looking at each other to find fault, but we're looking at each other out of an act of genuine love and care where we care about what that person is struggling with, then going to one another won't be as difficult as if we're afraid of the responses that we're going to get. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. Find somebody in your life, one person. If you're married, use your spouse. If you need somebody else outside of your marriage, find somebody, but get with somebody. We're all facing some kind of trial. No one is perfect, and we all need each other. But on the other hand, if someone approaches you with a word of loving exhortation, don't brush it off. Maybe they've seen something. We have blind spots in our lives. Maybe they have seen something that you can't see because you're blinded to it. They're not judging you. They're loving you. And if we take that attitude with one another, we will see that. And it will be a lot easier when people come to us and deal with this. Prayerfully consider what they've told you and ask the Lord if what they have said is true. I would ask that you now begin this process. Examine your own heart today, right now, to make sure that there is not any area of unbelief causing you to fall away. If we don't deal with an unbelieving heart, it will inevitably lead to a rebellion. I'm going to ask you all to stand right now for prayer as the team comes front to close us out. Hebrews 3.15 says, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Maybe you're here today, and through listening to this message, God has been stirring in your heart to know him more intimately. Maybe he's shown you that you don't that you do have an unbelieving heart and that he wants to give you a new one. Or maybe you're here today and you've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that you're thinking, and you're thinking it's too late. I'm here to tell you that it's not. I will tell you, though, not to wait. The writer says, today, if you hear his voice. James 4.14 says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
No one is guaranteed tomorrow. And as I pray, if you need forgiveness of sins for the first time, or if you've not been living as you should, or if you have an unbelieving heart that you want God to deal with, please come front and we will pray for you. Let's pray. Father, as you've been you've laid this on my heart this week and I've just been praying through this and listening to your word, I pray that if there's anybody here that has an unbelieving heart, be it the struggle they're facing, they just can't see how they're going to get through, that they need to come front and they need to deal with that. Or Father, if there is an evil, unbelieving heart where we have not placed our faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would pierce that right now. Father, that you would open our eyes to the sin that is indwelling us that we need to lay at your feet, that you have promised to forgive us. Father, as we close out our worship service and as we leave this place, I pray that if there's anyone here that needs prayer for anything, that they would seek that before they leave here. Father, I pray that you would, in us, stir up a spirit of community, of fellowship, where we long to be with one another, where we want to be in tighter community with each other where we genuinely care for one another and about the struggles that they're facing, that we want to see them overcome them, and that we want to walk through them with it. Father, most of all, I pray that your spirit would just move among us, that we would be revived, and that we would see hearts turning to you through our ministry. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.